0: Hey, Inflight listeners, this is Sol, and before we begin this week's episode, I just want to let you know that if you are interested in advertising on Inflight, inquiries are now open. Just email editorial at thresholdx.net. That's E D I T O R I A L at thresholdx.net. Thank you so much, and enjoy the show. Hello, 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 and welcome to InFlight, Threshold's best and only podcast. I'm your host, Sol Vashez. I hope you all had a great week. I'm really excited to begin this week as it is Thanksgiving here in the States, which means that I can see some family members that I haven't seen in a long time. I would continue to blabber on as I usually do for a few minutes, but we have a pretty long interview ahead of us this week, so we're going to hop right into the news with Kazo. Hey Keizo. Hey Keizo. Tell us about the news. Hello, hello, hello. All
1: right, let's kick off the news for this week. And uh, starting us off here is Flying Iron Simulations with the release of their Grob G 109, a change from their usual military aircraft lineup. The aircraft features a professional flight model, incredibly detailed 3D artwork and texturing, persistent state saving, and sounds recorded from the real aircraft. Next up is Orbix with the release of their highly anticipated True Earth US Northern California. Originally shown off at Flysom Show, it features 212 square kilometers of hand corrected ortho imagery, as well as nearly a thousand custom PBR points of interest. Orbix Truth Northern California is available to buy now for $58.95 Australian for the standard definition product. Continuing, we have Vertical Sim Studios. The developer has debuted their new Myrtle Beach Airport for X Plane. Shown to feature 4K ortho imagery, extensive use of PBR and Autogate although the developer has said that SAM support will come later. The release is imminent, and the announcement post stated that the release will be at the end of the month. Vertical Sim Studios also recently updated their Houston hobby freeware. The airport got SAM version 2 support, and many other tweaks and new features. Continuing with SAM, Stairport has released SAM version 2. Debuted at Flight Sim Show version 2, comes with a new user interface, a seasons library, and menu, among uh, many others. The update does not include World Jetways, which is the implementation of SAM into default jetways, and this will soon be available for a small fee. Steerport has also released their new castle for X-Plane. The scenery, published by Aerosoft, features SAM version 2 compatibility, 20 cm per pixel ortho imagery, custom PBR ground textures, as well as wet and snow ground effects. Aerosoft Newcastle XP is now available for €20.12 Euros over at the Aerosoft store. Up next, we have Laminar Research. The x developer held a live Q&A session over on YouTube discussing the future of X-Plane. The live video, which has now been removed, featured nine members of the X-Plane team assembled in Austin Meyer's house. The full recap of the now-deleted Q&A session is still available on our website. Make sure to take a look at it. Next up, we have V-Flight Air Simulations, who has announced their latest aircraft for X-Plane, the Cessna 150 Commuter. The aircraft will feature Librain integration for rain effects, a kneeboard with interactive weight, balance, and checklist sheets, and a pre-flight walkaround mode. Make sure to view all the previews over on the editorial. Moving on, we have Thranda Design with the release of version 2 of their Quest Kodiak. Thranda Design typically helps other developers such as JustFlight, Alabeo, and Caronado convert their aircraft over to X-Plane, but they also developed their own aircraft, such as the Quest Kodiak. The update brings many new and improved features, like a new synthetic vision system, a new oxygen system, and ice buildup visualization, among many others. Sim coders have also said that the Quest Kodiak will be receiving one of their reality expansion packs in the near future. Continuing in aircraft news, we have V Skylabs, who released their Secure 8. The aircraft features a highly detailed flight model, full VR compatibility, as well as an FML sound pack. The v Labs Secure 8 helicopter is available to purchase from $26.50 USD from the V-SkyLabs website, available now. Heading back to the world of scenery, we have the release of Frank Denise and Fabio Bellini's Mont Blanc group. The scenery covers more than 900 square kilometers, nine mountains with detailed meshes, and is topped off with thousands of custom objects placed around the highest peak in Europe. Frank Denise and Fabio Bellini's Mont Blanc Group is available to purchase over on the xplane.org store from $29.95 USD. And finishing off this week's news is Star Atlas, who have released their rendition of Beijing Daxing International Airport. The airport features HD ground textures, animated jetways, and hangar doors with the SAM plugin, as well as ortho imagery, among many other features. The developer has also noted their full awareness of copyright laws and product legality, as they are the first Chinese payware scenery developers of X-Plane. Star Atlas's Beijing Daxing International Airport can be purchased over on the Threshold Store now for $21.80 USD. And that concludes our news coverage for this week. Back to you, Seoul.
0: Thanks, Keizo. So this week, we have Gorn and Sasso on the show from Leading Edge Simulations and Hot Start. You'll know leading-edge simulations as the developers who brought you the Beechcraft Duchess, the Beechcraft Sundower C23 version 2, and the Douglas DC-3. And you'll know hot start simulations for their TBM-900. We're really, really excited to have them on the show this week. This week, Kazo will be interviewing them, so off to you, Kazo.
1: All right. I am joined by Guarn and Sasso of Hot Start and Leading Edge Simulations. We're really happy to uh, have you guys on the show. So let's get down to business here. Uh, Can you give us a bit of history about yourselves, like Leading Edge Simulations, Hot Start? Just give us some background there. I'm by training a software engineer.
2: Um, Basically, my primary sort of involvement with software started quite early on. Pretty much, just as I finished high school was when I. Picked up my first job at sort of development work. I, straight up, I basically jumped into enterprise software. Um, I, j- I bounced between a bunch of jobs, you know, usually the opportunities as they presented themselves. Four or five years back, um, I was primarily working on enterprise storage software, and uh, after taking a hiatus from flight simulation, probably like ten years, uh, I decided, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna check out this. Um, I'm going to check out this flight simulation thing think you know, by some coincidence, I came across some, I don't know, maybe a frugal video on YouTube and I checked it out. I was like, wow, this thing's pretty advanced. Like my last flight sim was like FS 2000, but that was, that was basically the absolute tail end when I, I lost interest. Then when I picked it up, you know, four or five years ago, I was like, wow, this, this stuff is really advanced quite far. And so initially I was just, you know, flying around as a pilot and then got myself to think you know I'd like to do some work on, on flight simulation as a hobby like I'm, I wasn't never quite sure it's going to be in any way profitable so I, I sort of started doing add-on plugins and that kind of stuff and um, I don't know just was like at this point two and a half years ago or something like that I wanted to work on some simple airplane something like that plan 11 just come out they were going to be putting in that g1000 starting in x 1110 so i decided you know i like a small airplane i, I like a simple airplane where i don't have to code the avionics so i put it on tbm 900 basically was going to make it as simple as possible project and it kind of grew from there and after release it kind of got became obvious that this was going to be something that i can basically combine my passion for software development with uh my passion for aviation, and basically that's what I do now. So I switched career tracks, I guess, from enterprise storage software over to flight simulation, physics simulation, that kind of
3: stuff. I started back in 2009, 10 years ago. Um, and before that, it was totally unrelated. I was doing personal training, and um, I used to work at the airport railway station in Sydney. And they let me go because, you know, Christmas was coming up, and um, they just said, oh, look, you know, You've been casual for a while, we, we have no need for any more casuals, we're going full-time now, so okay, yeah, let's see what happens. And um, I thought, well, you know, I don't really want to work for anybody, I just want to do my own thing, sort of thing, so. And I uh, decided to have a look at uh, making add-ons, which is something I would never even think of doing because I have not even done anything about 3D software or anything. And um, so I started looking at tutorials, looking at Blender, looking at 3ds Max, looking at... Uh, Lightwave. Um, So I started in Blender and back then Blender 2.49 was the big one and it was pretty bad. And, um, you know, I just started working on that and uh, put out a small single-engine GA at the suggestion of um, another developer, Javier Roland. He was the of the first time. Don't ever go for anything big. Start off for something small. You know, I started making a little bit of money and it wasn't a lot back then and then kept on plugging away and then finally hit it decently big with the Saab and that can be going for a while and um just started to you know work on other little projects and then um Jason uh, the ambrosio introduced me to Saso and said you're gonna do a TBM and he uh, managed you know just started very well within five minutes I said yeah I'm in let's go <laughs> and uh everything got everything else got put on hold for me and um just started going full steam ahead on the TBM.
1: So. Uh, you guys kind of dipped into this a bit, but uh, why do you choose to develop the planes you do? Like, what is your process for like choosing and developing a plane?
3: Uh, I'll take this one. Um, when I make a okay, there's a whole lot of things for me when it comes into making an aircraft. Um, the first one I did, the C-23, I did that because I got my PPL in that. Um, then I did a Duchess because they had one at the airport where the C-23 was held at. Um DC, I was doing a Saab, I started doing a Saab 340 because my flight instructor at the airport was a captain on a Saab 340 and he said he could help out. So I started doing that, but that was taking a bit of time and I asked the person I worked with back then, Theo, if he wanted to do a DC-3 just as a side project. We didn't know how to fly one, we didn't know how to make one, we just thought we'll make it, make it a light version, basic thing and see what happens. Um, so for me, like if, if I can get someone who can help me out with it, then I'll take it really, really seriously. If it's something like a side project because it's a plan that I like, then I'll do it as well. Um, and with regards to the TBM, I just jumped on board because I know SASA had all the resources for that. And I said, look, give me all the stuff I need and I'll make it for you and take it for you as long as you know how to do all the systems and stuff. So I'll let SASA take over from that one.
2: Yeah, so the decision-making process on the TBM was kind of haphazard in that. It was basically... A Sort of toy project, right? So I was just trying to figure out, you know, if, if something's going to work. So I was trying to reasonably simple, reasonably straightforward, and, um, you know, not straight jump into an airliner with a super complicated set of avionics in it. Um, in actual fact, the TBM pretty well grew while I was sort of developing it. So initially I started out with sort of just an idea for a really simple project. And then, you know, it sort of started packing on, like, I do want a maintenance system, I do want some custom avionics on there, I do want some custom effects on there, I do want a you know bunch of stuff, and so it sort of ballooned, and since I'm sort of, um, by training, even though I'm by training a software engineer, I am very much sort of inclined to physics and mechanical engineering, that kind of stuff. I wanted to make sure, you know, all the system simulation would be correct, so all the engine temps would be right, all the engine behaviors would be right, you know, all the speeds would be Pretty much on the money, exactly by book numbers. And um, it just sort of ballooned from there. So the TBM was sort of chosen on kind of a whim. Of course, I did consider it. One of the real big considerations for whenever you start making an add on, um, at least for me, um, is I I try and pick something that wasn't already done because I don't want to be splitting the market between if I come up with a competing project. Um, uh, and basically, as you're cutting your customer base in sort of half, so to speak, you know, some people that are going to stick with one developer, some people that are going to stick with another, usually people, you know, don't buy the same airplane twice. So I wanted to pick something that was reasonably unique. And I, I, back in the time, there wasn't really a sort of a high detail turboprop, single engine sort of, you know, private turboprop kind of crazy airplane in the space at all. So... Um, I kind of went for it. I wanted a, I wanted an airplane that was faster than and a piston aircraft, but not the complexity of like a corporate jet or something like that.
1: For both of you, I know uh, Sasso, you did better pushback, but have either of you considered making non-aircraft products as well?
3: I said I wanted to dabble into scenery at one point, but I don't know. Like c- scenery, I, I tried it with with Hoxton uh, Park Airport, and I don't know. I just I, I lost interest in it pretty quickly. So I, m- maybe. I don't know, I just prefer aircraft to scenery, and this was a while ago, this was back in, oh god, stuff the side came out, I think, I just wanted to try and do, do a bit of scenery. But um, no, aircraft is it for me, like, as long as they got someone to, to code, um, you know, I'd, I'd much rather do aircraft. I'd like to see things, like, I, I want to make something that will be visible for the majority of the sim session, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah. out of it or land in it, and that's it, that's what you see. But anything else apart from that, no, just aircraft for me.
1: Moving into another part of flight here, piracy is an issue that developers are constantly combating. What have your encounters been as developers with that? How do, you, how do you deal with that?
3: Oh, man, that's a sensitive topic now. Okay, number one, I hate DRM for one reason. There's another reason that, that, that I think we need it, but it puts a small factor of, like, I don't want to be misinterpreted. Um, it makes the customer feel like they're not being trusted. And thing is that at least when a pirated product hits the piracy websites, it's because of a customer with did trust. Someone has to buy it to be able to pirate it. So it's necessary, just like it's necessary to have you know those beepers when you walk out of a department store. Right? They, they put their security tags on there. That's a form of DRM. DRM um, is <clears throat> in, a, in, a, in, a, in a gas station, service station. They have security cameras. Um, it's, it's something that happens, and I've seen too many developers go out of business. I remember, I don't want to mention any names, as a developer in FS9, but, and he had pretty secure DRM until somebody figured out, a way to, figured out a way around it, and the consequences of them finding their way around this DRM, he lost his house, he lost his marriage, he lost his kids because he had no money. He wasn't anything else, yeah. And it was pretty bad, and I, and I, I had a long conversation with him. And he's pretty much given up on the whole flight sim thing um, altogether. I mean, he made a lot of money out of this, and he's now broke. So we need the RM. We've seen people compl- some people complain about it in the early days. They're saying, oh, I don't like to be treated like a, like, like a criminal, like a pirate. I said, well, you're not being treated like a pirate. All you have to do is just go through the proper procedure because people who pirate this stuff, they also buy the product. So some, eventually, you know, people were, you know, catching on it and thinking, okay, like, fair enough, they have, they have to protect their work. And, but there's still a few people who don't like it. And it's just something that we can't help. I mean, I've, I've seen too many people lose a lot of money. I mean, like, I'm, I'm just giving an example. The side got pirated once, a past update, um, because the Gizmo DRM got cracked. And I saw my sales dropped almost nothing. And I, I actually had to go out and get a job for, for a short time. Now, that wasn't pretty, and I spoke to Cameron about it, and Cameron said, look, we're working on a new DRM right now. We'll get it done as soon as possible, and hopefully this should, this should fix the this, this situation. Mm-hmm. So around January, oh, I forgot the year, but I, I remember it was January 15th, the new DRM came out, and he says, okay, we're going to put it in the sub. we're going to put a new update out, and um, it, it will mean you can't run the sub prior to this update, which means the sub will not be able to run in previous versions of X-Plane. So it came out, and within a day or two, my sales went back to normal again. Jesus, look at this. This is insane. So that's that's when I realized the intensity of, well, not the intensity, but the, the value of DRM. I was like, this is, like, I thought, okay, without having DRM, I might lose a few sales, but not enough to, you know, put me out of business. But, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, because I was, I was pretty much depending on the sub until TBM came along. So, yeah, when the, DR, when the new DRM got put into place and the new update for X-Plane came out, yeah, subsales pretty much restored and I was like, wow, this is, okay, we've got to keep on top of this. And I kind of feel, I don't want to say I feel bad for other developers who don't use the DRM because they know what they're getting into. But now it looks like DRM now is pretty stable uh, across the board with all different coding languages like SASL and, mm. and you know, whatever it is. Sasa? Yeah,
2: exactly. So, I, I can with Gore and basically on everything is that it's a necessary evil. And uh, I can tell you as a developer, nothing is more annoying to, than having to write DRM code. It's just the absolutely nastiest, ugliest crap um, that you can imagine. Um, and uh, because it's really hard to debug and that kind of stuff. And so we want to make make sure that it is straightforward, that it is simple and that it is as far as possible, unobtrusive to the user. So they're never, we don't ever want to punish a legit user for, you know, using the product at all. So we make sure that when we put in the DRM, that it has no drag on performance. We make sure that it is no drag on sort of the user interactivity where they are, you know, constantly being bombarded by pop-ups and that kind of stuff, register that register that, that doesn't happen at all anymore. And, uh, and so we basically are trying to make sure that the path is as straight as possible for the for the legit user and uh, as thorny as possible um, for the illegitimate user. And there are people who have tried. I'm not going to name names, and because, but we do know who they are. And, um, you know, sort of on balance, we try to actually tilt it towards the legitimate user. So if there, if there ever, ever was a completely sort of either or situation it hasn't happened yet, but if there ever was a completely mm-hmm. either or situation, I was always going to err on the side of, you know, giving the user benefit of the doubt and just, you know, let them do whatever they want. Um, even if it means I lose a couple of sales because my reputation is more important to me than a couple of lost sales.
1: What, what are some challenges that you guys at Hotstart encountered when you were developing your TBM 900? Because there must have been
2: some. Well, I mean, it's basically, like, pick a week of the development cycle. I was going
1: to
3: say, so you can mean, handle this <laughs> one because I'm sure there's more code challenges than 3D challenges. So yeah, go
2: I mean, even 3D challenges, there are, there are things that I have to consider from a coding perspective because when we're doing some, you know, I want a part of the airplane to move in a certain part and animated in a certain way. You know, it's, it's pretty, you know, like, for instance, when I'm talking to you, we want to have animated um, the animated things like you know the pre-flight tags, things like the plugs for the engine, that kind of stuff. If you want to animate that nicely, you would normally want to be using th- a thing called skeletal animation. And unfortunately X-Plane doesn't have that. So we would have to sort of work out some trick in code and uh, in Gordon's animation kind of deal to figure out how to do that. So there is certainly crossover as well into 3D modeling, but on the coding side it's like, you know, take your pick. Um, <laughs> Every, every week, um, it's, you know, engine is mis- misbehaving in some manner. Um, the hard, one, one of the hardest parts during development of the TVM is the TVM has an alphanumeric keep pad on it, right? So it has, you um, mm-hmm. forgetting the exact number, model number from Garmin, but um, that, GCU 650, I think, or something like that. Um, but it is not implemented in X-Plane. So the X-Plane G1000 does not give you any method of entering alpha and characters. So you can basically, if you're entering a flight plan in X-Plane, there is no way. And I looked in various ways, I even looked into like, you know, disassembling X-Plane's binaries and basically hooking up directly into its internal APIs. Even that would not be reliable. So in order to get like that alphanumeric keypad, key, I kind of refused to accept that it wouldn't, wouldn't work. So what we're doing is an enormously complicated spaghetti code mess <laughs> of us literally grabbing screenshots of the p- instrument panel and parsing out the characters and doing like optical character recognition to try and figure out what character the G1000 is on right now, and based on that, when you press the when you press the letter, we turn the knob in, invisibly for you in one frame. We do like twenty clicks to the right or. Nineteen clicks to the left to give you go from A to Z and Z to back to B and that kind of stuff. Wow! So we do that sort of invisibly for you. It's not completely foolproof, and there are some corner cases when it misbehaves. um, But that was sort of one of the most I call you know eating broken glass moments during the two months uh, during the TBS development. Um, for the for our next project for the Challenger, it's. Essentially, a constant struggle because of how high we have set the bar. So, for the for the challenger, I sort of dispensed with. For the TBM, I was kind of willing to do certain subsystems in a kind of with, with what they call notional way. So, where we have, you know, we know sort of what's supposed to appear on your screens, mm-hmm. and we'll just, you know, fake it. Essentially, you, you know, you turn your knob to this side, and then we'll basically make like uh, cabin pressure going one way or the other way. And there's no physical model going behind it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Challenger, we're not doing any of that anymore. So there's basically everything in the Challenger is custom coded and and properly implemented to be physically correct. So the entire electrical system is simulated down to like individual breakers. And we are modeling every time, every second. I think it's 25 or 35 times a second. We basically recalculate the entire state of the electrical network on the aircraft You know, we're talking like 80 80 electrical buses, um, 10 different electrical sources, four different transformers. It's like 20 contactors on there that can be in various configurations. And the airplane, 25 times a second, basically recomputes a new state of the electrical system, figures out, okay, this component here has an X amount of electrical demand. And we are currently being fed from this electrical source. So we'll take X number of joules of electrical energy out of it and we'll use it in that part and it even feeds into more crazy things like we feed we grab the electrical energy from the electrical network that then gets fed if you're running you know your ac hydraulic pump the ac hydraulic pump again through conservation of energy it takes some amount of that energy and puts it as pressure energy into your hydraulic system which we know how much your hydraulic accumulator can accumulate how much fluid um, sort of and we do a normal energy computation and then from that we then go into the actual actuators and we'll figure out you know how big is the actuator what's the surface area of the piston inside what's the actuating arm is acting on and you, we can go down to the level of you know figuring out I've actually written custom code that figures out aerodynamic loading on the flight controls and based on that on your you know speed of flight and that kind of stuff we figure out Mm -hmm. you know how much force is required to move flight control to a new position we compute that as an energy value We know how many joules of energy it takes we take that energy out of the hydraulic actuator and that takes it basically out of the hydraulic system and this in this kind of really complicated convoluted way through many threads of interaction it basically originally originates in some source of energy which would could be you know your fuel energy from or you know, bleed air or fuel energy from running the mechanical mm-hmm. hydraulic pumpers and that kind of stuff. Well, you just blew my <laughs> So we so Yeah, so we're, we're not taking any shortcuts this time. It's all being done as far as possible physically correctly. I mean, give me a whiteboard and a marker and, you know, we can spend an hour and a half on this, but...
1: That kind of uh, brings me into, uh, like, uh, your Twitch streams. You guys stream on Twitch sometimes, especially you, uh, Sasso. So uh, what do you guys think of Twitch as, like, a platform to, like, reach out to the Flights and community?
2: Twitch is a pretty good platform. I Actually, we registered on Mixer about a week ago, and I'm thinking I might do a stream there as well to see what somebody else is offering. And as far as... Um, in general, streaming, it doesn't really matter what platform you're on. You can be streaming on Google, um, sorry, on YouTube, you can be streaming on whatever. Um, I think as a general idea, streaming is pretty important in keeping in touch with your potential customer base because people, you know, Oftentimes during that kind of software development, game development, that kind of stuff, it's easy to lose contact between the customer and the developer. And the, the customer basically starts seeing the developer as it's just a name. You know, it's a big brand. Everybody imagines that kind of Microsoft-y size corporation behind everything they do, everything they buy. Um, so, you know, they, they may think, they may think um, you know, they look at a flight sim developer and think like, oh, that's, that's somebody who's made it right. They've got like offices somewhere. they got support staff. And in, in the vast majority of cases, that is not actually the case. It's literally a couple of guys doing it from their homes and doing it as a passion project. So, um, for me, I think the most important part is not losing that human touch. So that people understand, you know, when they are when they are buying our products, they are actually supporting actual people that are going to be then working on making more good stuff for them to enjoy. And that's really all we're doing. All we're trying to do is. I don't really care about how much money I make, as long as it basically is enough for me to sustain uh, a, a normal lifestyle. And the most important part for me is to make people enjoy aviation and flight simulation. Maybe we'll make some, we'll make some people embark on a commercial pilot or professional pilot career. But even if not, if, if as long as it just brings a chuckle to their faces from time to time, that's great. Even if it's a bug that makes them laugh. Mm-hmm. So there's a big elephant in the room what's going to happen with Microsoft. We'll see. Um, Microsoft Flight like, Simulator, I kind of doubt that it's going to be really usable before the end of next year, mm-hmm. um, much before the end of next year. You know, people are people are sort of holding off investing and, well, I'm not going to buy any add-ons because Flight Simulator is coming out next year or something like that. Um, people are probably hoping for it's going to come out in July, whereas the reality is that if anything, it's going to come out in a pretty rough state probably towards the end of, you know, the end of fall. And, um, and so you're basically, it's what I'm reading. There's when people say that I'm reading, I don't want to buy anything entertaining for a year.
0: Yeah. <laughs> wow.
2: That's, I mean, you probably are satisfied with what you have, but sure. <laughs> um, as to what's going to look like in terms of flight simulator, because I know that you're going to be asking me, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to be looking into that? The answer is. We are always open to development, right? We're not particularly married to explain. It's For us as add-on developers, the simulator is a platform. It's a foundation on top of which we deliver our products. So if somebody else comes along and gives me a much better dev environment, a much better tool chain, I'm going to use that, obviously. So if if, if nothing else, considering, I'm obviously going to look into it. Whether we're going to make the switch really depends on a lot of fine prints. So what are going to be the conditions for using the Microsoft Flight Simulator SDK going forward? How are they going to be treating third-party developers? What's the sim going to perform like? What is the tool set going to be looking like? There's a lot of questions that haven't at all been even have been begun to be answered, like not to mention actually getting answers and actually getting committed tools for development. Like there's probably, for people that are sort of the big flight sim devs on the Microsoft side, um, so like recently the PMDG announced that they're going to be migrating over to Microsoft Flight Simulator. Those are guys that can do large contractual obligations and large contractual um, kind of deals without largely sight scene for the development tools. But for us small devs, we, we have to really see where the rubber hits the road and what the actual work environment is going to be like. If it's going to be Mm -hmm. just as open as X-Plane and just as good as X-Plane, maybe. There's nothing holding us back in principle, but I can't see right now. Literally, what I'm I'm getting for Microsoft Flight Simulator right now is just a big question mark. I don't know, and nobody else really knows.
1: (laughs) What about you, Gordon? Uh, What are are your thoughts on Um, Playtime 2020?
3: It's, uh, oh. I see a lot of people getting really, really excited about it. I mean, like, it's new, so it's like a new toy. Yeah. And when people see a new toy, they think, oh, man, what's this? I want to get this. It looks pretty good. I want to see it. I mean, I, I don't have an opinion on it yet. I think it's too early to tell what it's going to be like. Um, I mean, you know, like, echoing what Sasa just said, um, you know, everything depends on a lot of fine print. I mean, like, we're comfortable in X-Plane right now. Um Salsa develops on Linux, so that leaves um, FS Twenty Twenty out of the picture unless he does some sort of freaky hack job to his computer or gets a Windows boot or something like that. Um,
2: oh, I've got I've got alternatives for that already planned yeah. out. Like if if Microsoft is going to make it possible to go this way, we might still make it. If if, if but if they're going to like completely close off all avenues and you're going to have to completely commit their development pipeline and their development tools and everything. It's getting pretty hard to justify <laughs> for me. But yeah. So yeah. it really depends, again, it really depends on the fine print and how tightly tied down the platform's going to be. Because if it's going to be like for Xbox, then we can pretty much forget it because that thing right, is right. like super mega proprietary.
3: This is right. one of those things where it's literally, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, like, we're not committing anything now. I mean, not at, if, even if they come out with some sort of like late beta, um, version of FS 2020, and then people ask us, okay, well they've got a late beta. You're going to go over now? Uh, too little to tell. We don't know what's going to happen yet. Um, I, I want to see what X Plane will do. I want to see how FS 2020 will be. And like you said, F- FS 2020 will probably not be fully usable next year. Like th- th- there's going to be bugs. There's going to be issues. Um, there's to, yeah. p- people have to test it still for a while. So
2: it's probably going to be a more expensive platform. People think that. Oh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be this and that, you know, and the it's going to make uh, sliced bread obsolete and that kind of stuff. But um, the reality of it is, for instance, I don't play any, I don't have like those Xbox pass, whatever things, subscriptions. So it's probably going to be a subscription model. If you're going to be basically paying the subscription just to get Microsoft Light Simulator, you're looking at a simulator that costs you $120 a year. Mm-hmm. And I've had X Plane 11 for sixty dollars now for three years. So, right. That's... you know, you know, w- the, the question is, how much in, in a three years? Basically, I'm going to be, I will have spent, if that kind of a model, over three hundred dollars on Microsoft Flight Simulator. So the question is, you know, are you actually willing to stomach that spend? Um, mm-hmm. If you're using it for something else, some other games, sure, you know, go ahead. But for me, and I know a lot of flight simulator enthusiasts, they do very little other than flight simulation. Maybe, maybe something else. But you know, if you look at the what they had in Navigrafty survey, our average customer base is like 42 years old. Like, it's old dudes. <laughs> it's people, it's yeah. people who, you know, you're not looking at you're not looking at a user who on the weekends goes either flying flight simulators or picks up an Xbox controller and goes cursing out kids in Fortnite doesn't work like that. It's it's a, it's a pretty different market base. So I'm not entirely sure. Um, for many people, they will be able to, you know, justify that spend. I don't know if everybody, so there's, I think there's some niche that X1 can still carve out. Hmm.
3: Yeah. Unless there's some, unless there's some drastic change in the market, like unless too many like if the market, shifts like to say 50% in the negative, like say, if we lose 50% of our market to FS 2020, then we'll start looking at, okay, let's, let's look at alternatives. Can we move? Can we make the move to FS 2020? But yeah. un- un- unless that happens, it's, it's unlikely. If, if we maintain the majority of our, of our customer base um, in X plane, then I, I, I doubt we're going to go anywhere.
2: And for a lot of people, what they don't realize is, um they assume basically a lot of that sort of, you know, Microsoft's going to take over everything or a lot of Windows users. What they don't see is that x user base is a good 30% Mac and most of all, one or two percent Linux, but basically 33, one third of your customer base. So we know the lower bound of our customer base, right? So that's going to be essentially locked into X-Plane because Microsoft ain't going to do a Mac version for sure. Um, so... <laughs> Like my my hope is to be able to run FS twenty twenty on Linux on their Wine, but probably not going to be possible. No known knowing them, so um, I don't know. But in terms of in terms of like customer base, we know for sure that at least a third, roughly a third of the customer base, they don't they don't have Windows. They're running X Plane on Mac, and that was not going away. Probably people right. are just not going to disappear, or you know, you tell them. You know, it's cool that you've spent $2,000 on a Macintosh, but would you also like to spend another 1500 on a good PC to run new Microsoft Flight Sim for $120 a year? Maybe
1: not. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, quite an investment. Thanks, guys. That's, uh, that's what I've got. And uh, it's been great having you on here. We really appreciate it. You guys, uh, You guys are awesome. I know uh, thanks. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Gorn and Sasso, for being on In Flight this week. Be sure to go show Leading Edge Simulations and Hot Start some love after listening to this episode. Next week on the show, we're going to be interviewing our one and only Magnus. We're going to be talking Threshold, Xenviro, and also In Flight. We're really looking forward to that. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of In Flight. This is Soul out.